Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information. Feel free to use our contact form there. It's always a delight to hear from you. Or send an email directly to me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we have reached the point in the proceedings where I am beginning a new series, and it is a daunting series, especially in this particular format. The series is going to feature the attributes of God. Uh, Really, we're, we're going to talk about who God is over the course of many weeks. And we're not just doing a Bible lesson per se. We will talk about some scripture, but we're really looking at, at, at who God is, the character of God as revealed to us in nature and in scripture, not, not really in that order from an important standpoint. Scripture, the Bible is, is more important. Now, if you, if you listen to this and you've just stumbled across this podcast and you say, wait a minute, I'm not into all this religious stuff. I would just challenge you to stay, stay with me for a few minutes. I think you might find this interesting because we're going to talk about a, a concept in, in classical Christian theism. And I, I know that sounds really heady and boring and academic, but we're, we're in this series, we're not just going to, to, to know about God, to learn about God. We're, we're going to seek to know God. Uh, relationally. And and to do that, we've got to get to the point where we're not talking about a caricature of the true God. And and sadly, in our society today, and for many years, like all the years, we have oftentimes, even in our churches, painted a caricature of, of God. And one of the challenges that we have is the limitations of, of language. All language, specifically I'm using English today because that's the only language I'm fluent in. If I tried to do it in Spanish, it would be Spanglish and you would only understand some of the words. Even if you're a fluent Spanish speaker, you would still only understand some of the words. So I'm going to use English, but even English sentences are woefully inadequate. I titled this episode, God is Simple, right? And what we're talking about is a doctrine called divine simplicity. And it's not what it sounds like it is. If you're not familiar with these classical theological terms, don't worry. I'm going to explain it. The, the divine simplicity is, is, is our, our topic today. This is our introduction to the attributes of God. And today is really just a, an effort to seek to reach an understanding about what we're going to talk about. Uh, it's, it's kind of the most fundamental aspect of who God is. And I'll tell you the challenge. I mentioned the challenge with language. Here, here it is. 
if I were to talk about uh, you and I were to say, Joe is very smart, or I were to say, uh, Susan is uh, very bright or kind or competent or caring or, or maybe all those things. And I, I, I can use uh, English sentences to describe the component parts of, of a person. Now, now in totality, you're just a, a, a person, one, one person with all these characteristics, but you're the, you're kind of the sum of all of those things. And you're, we are, we are the sum of, of lots of inputs. You know, if you, if you look at your life and you think, well, this, this came from my college and, and, and this, this came from some work experience. And uh, I, I do a thing. My daughter uh, kind of calls me out playfully for this, where when I shake hands with someone, if I don't know who they are, but they know who I am, I do a thing where I kind of keep them moving by, I shake their hand with my right hand and I take my left hand and put it on their elbow and sort of move them on by me. And I, and I say these really innocuous things like, oh, it's good to see you again, because I know that they know me from somewhere. And we, we have all those things that we do. We, uh, I, I know people who have a, a different voice on the phone than they do when they talk to people. You, you might be one of those people. You might, I know people who have a business voice or a, or a speaking voice when they speak to a crowd, and then they have, they have another voice for casual conversation. I, unfortunately for me, and, and, and because it's a little bit of a relationship impediment, I kind of have one style and it's all, according to my daughter, I sound like a banker all the time. And I, I don't intend to, but I guess that has been beaten into me over time. I took a, a speech course in college that was required my freshman year with a very particular lady whose name I can't remember. And she was so demanding. And she, she beat the Southern accent out of me and she taught me good diction. Now I don't always use that good diction, but I sort of have this Midwestern neutral accent that is not contrived. It, it was, I, I mean, she was tough. It was, it was not even a three hour course. I don't think, I think it was a one or two hour. I don't even remember, but oh my goodness, I thought I was going to flunk that course at the beginning of the year. One time I hyperventilated so badly. I don't know whether you've ever done this, but I, I had to give a speech on something and I wasn't prepared and I wasn't comfortable and I knew she was going to critique every word I said. And I, I, I kind of got behind in my breathing and struggled to catch up, almost passed out. And the entire class gasped and then applauded at the end that I made it through. But the English language comes up short because we, we talk about attributes. We, we, you, you could even go back further and look at your childhood and look at you probably remember some things and, and then, you know, frighteningly, there's some things you probably don't remember that shaped you, that were formative. You might've had a certain kind of parent. You might've had, you might've played certain sports. You might've been good at some things uh, from a hobby standpoint or in special interest. You might've hung out with friends who, who had certain tendencies, did certain things, participated in certain kinds of activities. You might've been nurtured well or not nurtured well, or, you might have had a coach that was particularly meaningful, or a pastor, or a youth group leader. Uh, you might have, you might remember a camp experience uh, or uh, other things. But but you, we become this this collection. You know, you know, we we don't really have an essence the way God has an essence. God, God is not, and, and I'm going to talk about this, so you're going to sound like I'm repeating myself. 
God is not this compilation of attributes. God is not changing, developing, growing, maturing. We like to think, and, and even our language is just suited for this, but we, we like to think that we are progressing, that we, we almost think that, that, I mean, you'll hear people say change is good. You know, I, I heard a political commentator say, in, in fact, it was Joe Manchin, and um, I want to say his name is John Huntsman, but they're forming some, or they're talking about forming some third political party, and they were saying, we want to get things done. And you remember Barack Obama said uh, he was for change, hope and change or something like that. I think it was a slogan that we, we tend to think even the word progressives politically progressive being pro progressing, changing, uh, you know, there, there's an argument in the, in the uh, government uh, over the U S constitution. Is it a changing document or is it, you know, is it living and changing and morphing or is it dead? Is it, is it, was it written once for all and written? Well, I think it was written once and for all and written well. So, there's the, the difficulty we have with language is number our number one challenge today in this discussion. So we're going to use finite English to describe an infinite God. And I want to be careful just layering on all this, this, I'll call, I'll call it God talk. I, I want to be careful even using words like infinite God, but we'll use finite language that, that is imperfect that we use to describe humans. And, and then and then even our, our fundamental thinking that things that change are good, things that grow with the times. You have to, you'll hear people say, you have to change with the times, you have to grow, you have to advance. That, that's not something that is true of God. Now, there's a third problem, and, and then I'll dive right in here. The, the third problem is that our society at large, even the society in the church, even in relatively conservative denominations, even in mainstream evangelicalism, there's the thought that God changes. There's the thought that God kind of makes it up as he goes along and becomes whatever is needed for the time and changes. And that's just not biblically true. We're going to talk next week. Your big fancy word, but come back. You'll, you'll love it. It's, it's not that hard. God's immutability is being unchanging from eternity past to eternity future to both ends of the spectrum where you get to those arrows and the little infinity sign on both ends. God has been the same and will be the same. God is uh, uh, in, in the Godhead is in three persons and has always existed as such. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes. Others, of you, your heads are exploding. You're like, wait a minute. I've never heard that before. Wasn't Jesus just created when, when you know, Mary became with child and he was born and he walked the earth? Nope. No, he was not. And we'll talk more about that. So we have, we have the, the, the language challenge, the, the perspective challenge, and then and then we've got the cultural challenge. We got the we we've got this this challenge with the way we we think our culture thinks. I'm I'm not suggesting that you become this relic that you become a dinosaur and you suddenly espouse truth that is so conservative that you're you're thought of as odd. 
I'm suggesting that if we capture this doctrine of God's simplicity well, it will set the framework for this beautiful discussion on his attributes. It gives us the perspective that we need. And I, I would just liken it simply to seeing a star. Uh, and there, there's a star that that appears every night. And some of you probably know which one it is. I, I don't know. But it's a very prominent one. It's It's to the we live in Florida and it's to the west in the sky at about, oh, two o'clock-ish. It's kind of the way I would describe it. And it moves around. Actually, the earth is moving around. And, but, but it's in that, that part of the sky. And, and it, it's just kind of our star, you know, it's always there. There's that bright star right over the tree line. And uh, it, it kind of along with the moon sort of, you know, just provides a, a beautiful backdrop well that star is is one thing but it, it's quite another to see it in in the perspective of, of of all of the stars you know the entire night sky when it's a when it's a nice clear night and you can see the sky well it's just beautiful and and i i i think and and it's it's also just mind-blowing to me to think about simple things to most of you like the Earth's distance from the sun and the way it rotates, and it, you know, we go further away, we freeze; we get closer, we we would we would burn up, we would incinerate, and and all, all of those the way the way it all works together. You know, how how do planets not collide? And what about gravity? And how does that work? What keeps us in our orbit? What's you know stops us from wobbling? Because if we wobbled, we could go one direction or the other, and either freeze or incinerate. And so. It's all of that and how it works together that is so beautiful. And I think that will be true of this study when we start to see this is really who God is. This isn't a, a list of separate attributes that he acquired. Our minds are going to be blown by this if I can present it clearly and efficiently in this podcast format. So let's jump right in. The first point I want to make is, is there, there's a thing called classical Christian theism. It attempts to use language from nature and scripture to describe a coherent doctrine of God. And I already mentioned that the English language frankly comes up short in our efforts to describe God. But at the same time, I said, our God talk is important. Our grammar actually establishes a framework for our God talk and for the theological proposals we we, we do and, and don't consider sound. So, and when I, when I say our God talk, you know what I'm talking about. There, there's a, I'm going to admit a weakness. There's a, there's a show I liked its first few seasons called Suits. Meghan Markle was in it. And it's, uh, I, I want to say it's on Amazon Prime now, but I'm not certain of that. I think that's where it is. And, and they, they use God's name in vain a lot. And it got to the point where we just we just stopped listening to it after um, after a while, and so we talk as a society about God in in very slang crass ways. Even even Christians do sometimes. But then there's another kind of talk that we do, and we've all been guilty of this. But but we'll say things like, "Oh, that's a God thing," or we'll reference God as. You'll hear people say the big man upstairs or some other reference there. We, we talk about God 
in rather mundane, even crude, woefully inadequate ways. I know what you mean when you say to me, and some of you who listen are friends of mine who I encounter in various walks of life, and and I, 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 I'm not shaming you. I know what you mean when you say, oh, that's a God thing. I, I understand that. There's a lady at Circle Christian School where I've been involved for a long time who she's retired now, but she used to say, yay, God, after something good happened. And I get it. I, I, know, I know that comes from a, a place of good intentions. But to say that's a God thing, it, it really doesn't describe, and, and you feel free to do that, and you can do it around me, and I'm not going to shame you. But it really doesn't describe your theology, our theology correctly, because everything is a God thing. What you mean is that's evidence of God working in our lives. And I, and I know that. And that might sound a little academic and a little funny, a little dorky, like I am, and you you're, you feel free to say it's a God thing. But um, yay, God, and um, I, I, you know, I, I was at a church years ago <laughs> with some dear friends, who, who I, uh, and, and, and there, there was a guy in the row behind us who, who would say, uh, instead of amen, when, when the pastor talked and he agreed with something, he, he would say, come on. <laughs> and and I, I know that's not God talk, but it's kind of, you know, evangelical ease or something. And so we, we use language to talk about God, period. So, so the goal of, of this episode today is not to comprehend God in some scientific sense or, or to totally dispel the mystery of his being. We're not, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're, we're not talking about the true living God if we can dispel this mystery. Instead, throughout this series, we're going to insist on, on the absolute in, incomprehensibility of God as, as our classic theology forefathers did. Our theological grammar should preserve the integrity of the revealed mystery of God at precisely the point where human reason may be tempted to diminish it in an effort to render God more easily understood by us as humans. Kind of a, you know, a quick start God or a, or, or a handy dandy pocket guide to God uh, is, is what we, we tend to do. Whereas uh, we, we make God our buddy. We make, uh, we make, uh, we, we diminish the incomprehensibility of God and we're not, we're not, I, I hope doing that here in this in this series together. So the primary doctrine, believe it or not, even though you might not have heard of it, that regulates our grammar in theology is or should be divine simplicity. This doctrine goes back, n- named as such, goes back to the medieval period. Divine simplicity is simply the doctrine that says that God is without parts. There is one simple and spiritual being we call God. The simplicity of God is the most fundamental doctrinal grammar of divinity, according to an Anglican scholar, Peter Sandlin. This doctrine isn't a theological relic as it's described by some modern evangelicals. This is a weighty, important document. Some scholars conclude that the heresy that is prevalent in our churches and seminaries 
begins by being wrong on divine simplicity. And I'll, I'll explain that. So, so divine simplicity, God is not composed of parts. That's the takeaway. Whatever is composed of parts, if you think about it, depends on its parts in order to be as it is. Composite beings need their parts in order to exist as they do. If God was composed of parts, of, of components, he would be dependent on the parts and the composer of the parts. You know, if you are both smart and athletic and kind, then, then, then you have parts and they came from someone outside of you. It, it's funny. When, when you learn a musical instrument, think about this. Something outside of you is acting on you to change you. You're changing physically and you're changing mentally. I play guitar. I'll never forget trying to learn chords when I was much younger. And I remember my fingers on my left hand would get in the way. Frankly, all my fingers on both hands got in the way. But it was the hardest thing to press down on the frets at just the right spots. And I would, I would touch strings I wasn't supposed to touch and not touch strings I'm supposed to touch and not fully compress the string on the fret the right way and didn't know where to be on the fret. And now it's just a kind of a feel thing. I just know how to do it. But, but I changed. First, I changed mentally because I had to learn all the strings and, and where all the notes are and how to read them. And then I had to learn how to play them. I had to, I had to change physically. So, so there, there's an outside force. If you say someone is good at music, that there, there's some outside force that acted on us. There are components that we were dependent on to develop. Instead, God is absolute in being. He's alone the sufficient reason for himself in all other things and cannot in any respect derive his being from something else, from another. God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God. You hear that? God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God. God's existence, God's, God's ontology, God's act of being and essence, his essence cannot be constituent components in him. Rather, God must be identical with his existence and essence, and they must be identical with each other. His existence is not in what he has, but what he is. God didn't initiate divinity as a concrete instance of it. He is divinity himself. No man is humanity as such, but God is divinity as such. In Exodus 3.14, we see that God's essential identity with his own existence is the ontological foundation of his name, I am. You're familiar with that passage. I and am are capitalized. Second point I want to make is that if all that is in God is God, then each of his attributes is identical with his essence. This is not true of other creatures. A human may be good, wise, just, merciful, and the like, but those are not identical with their human essence. 
Many humans don't exhibit any of those attributes and yet are possessed with the same human essence. If God is simple, there can be no real distinction between his essence and his attributes. Think about that. God is essence, all being, and nothing else. Puritan George Swinnock said, God does not require what is not God or some sort of divinity to be anything that he is. Our language comes up short. You know, we talked about this earlier. We say things like Mary is brilliant or Joe is a talented athlete or Susie is a loving, caring person. Those, those human characteristics are not the same as God's attributes. God isn't just loving. He is love. We will talk about this throughout this series on God's attributes because this foundation in simple divinity, divine simplicity, is important to our understanding of God. All of God's attributes are really identical with each other. He's not a combination of component parts. God's attributes are one indivisible essence. His wisdom, power, goodness, eternality, love, and hate are all the same and one in God. That was an incomplete list, but you get the idea. God is not a bundle of contiguous properties. God's simplicity is profound. It's counterintuitive. It's even difficult to articulate. Even in our study, our discussion, we'll be addressing God's attributes separately as if he is a composite. But we will have to function within the limits of the English language while attempting to recognize God's simplicity throughout this, this overview. There are three biblical doctrines that necessitate the truth of God's simplicity. Listen to this. Divine independence, infinity, and creation. Independence, infinity, and creation. And just to explain each of those, in independence, if God is of himself, then it follows that he does not derive any aspect of himself, existence, essence, attributes, activity, from another. God is independent in being. We see this in Acts 17, 25, Romans 11, 35. No one supplies to God what he lacks. We see this also in Job 35, 7 through 8, and 41, 11. God does not receive anything outside of himself. God doesn't derive knowledge outside of himself, and neither is he informed by creatures. We see that in Isaiah 40, 14. His will is independent and so is not compelled by any other. Nebuchadnezzar declares this in Daniel 4, 35. The revelation of his name, I am, in Exodus three fourteen, is probably the most prominent biblical witness to God's independence. God is reassuring Moses of his all-sufficiency to accomplish the work of redemption from Egypt. His name references his being and confirms his perfect sufficiency. You see, we love, and you've heard me say this many times, to, to be self-sufficient. It's a, an aspiration of ours. I, I think it comes from, and I want to be careful here, but it comes from, from our desire to be like God. It comes from our being made in his image. I think it was the basis for Adam and Eve's sin, this self-sufficiency. Well, God is self-sufficient, perfectly sufficient. 
in and of himself. We are woefully insufficient. But the second word that we want to focus on that in this three-word summary of God's simplicity is infinity. God is infinite in every way. So we have first his independence and then his infinity. God's greatness above all creation is clear in Scripture, Psalm 8.1. Even the heavens cannot contain him. No one can discover his limits. Job 11, verse 7. His fullness of being, the the infinite cannot be built up from the finite. Parts of a thing are essentially finite, and God is infinite. The third word in our effort to describe divine simplicity is creation. Since God is the first being from whom all other beings flow, he must not derive his own being from constituent parts or elements within himself. All things that exist are said to exist by his will. We read that in Revelation 4.11. He's the one who calls that which is not as though it is. Romans 4.17. He makes created beings to exist ex nihilo or out of nothing. He does not employ, I say this to my students all the time, he does not employ existing materials in creation. We see that in Romans 11.36 in that beautiful doxology at the end of that chapter. If you look, go back and look at Romans 11.33-36, you'll, you'll see something of God's divine simplicity. If God is composed of parts, then those parts would be before him in being. He would exist from them or of them, and that's not the case. There's a theologian named Herman Bavink, and he, I want to just read a quote of his to you. He explains simplicity. He says, this, is sim- this simplicity is of great importance for our understanding of God. It is not only taught in Scripture, but also automatically follows from the idea of God and is necessarily implied in the other attributes. Simplicity is the antonym of compounded. If God is composed of parts, like a body or, or composed of a, a, a genus or, or class and differentia, that is, attributes of differing species belonging to the same genus, substance and accidents, matter and form, potentiality and actuality, essence and existence, then his perfection, his oneness, independence, and immutability cannot be maintained. On that basis, he is not the highest love for then there is in him a subject who loves, which is one thing as well as a love by which he loves, which is another. The same dualism would apply to the other attributes. In that case, God is not the one whom nothing better can be thought. Isn't that something? In, in other words, if when you think of God, you think of something, some entity that better can be thought of, you're not thinking, we're not thinking of the true living God. And the quote goes on, instead, God is uniquely his own, having nothing above him. Accordingly, he is completely identical with the attributes of wisdom, grace, and love, and so on. He is absolutely perfect, the one whom nothing higher can be thought. 
Bavink just has a way of explaining it sometimes. The one whom nothing higher can be thought. I, I just think about that. That's, 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 it's just, you, you almost have to hold your tongue right and stand on one foot. So it's essential to understand the doctrine of simplicity because we, we have to correct any, any proclivity that, that we have toward conceiving of God as being dependent on principles or sources of, of being more basic than his own divinity. We tend to transfer our assumptions about ourselves to God. We think of God as if he were fundamentally like his creation. But a God composed of parts is not worthy of our worship because he is not the highest being. Rather, he is something that is caused to exist by another. Divine simplicity challenges us out of our idolatrous assumptions wherein we caricature God, don't we? I don't want you to leave this podcast beating yourself up and say, oh, I'm miserable. I do this all the time. Well, we all do. We come at this from a human perspective. I just want us to stretch our thinking with respect to divine simplicity. So even as we attempt to, to discuss the attributes of God, it, it would be easy to think of these attributes as component parts. I mentioned that earlier. Instead, we, let's acknowledge that we're just describing the character of God rather than parts that aggregate to form God. Some would suggest that there's no path to the knowledge of God. The storm that rages around us, which discredits and even mocks biblical truth, can make the journey to knowing God seem daunting. The challenges presented, even by the English language, can intimidate us into failing to even begin the journey. A guy named J.I. Packer provides us with five foundational principles that we'll use in this study to begin our journey of exploring the attributes of God. Here, here they are. I'll just read them quickly. God has spoken to man. Number one, God has spoken to man and the Bible is his word given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Scripture teaches this very clearly. Number two, God is Lord and King over his world. He rules all things for his glory, his own glory displaying his perfections in all that he does in order that men and angels might worship and adore him. Three, God is savior active in sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from the guilt and power of sin, to adopt them as his children and to bless them accordingly. Four, God is triune, God in three persons. There are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the work of salvation is one in which all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. Five, godliness means responding to God's revelation and trust and obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and lived in light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion. Finally today, and I know this is a lot in this format is not well suited for these bullet points because you're not probably not able to write them down. But knowing God versus knowing about God is our goal. A person can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. Similarly, a person can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. Our goal in this study is to know God. This is not just an academic exercise. I I grew up in an environment in the Deep South where everyone spoke uh, Christianese. 
I mean, just you might be in a town like that where where God bless you and and I mean, just just praise the Lord is said often. All kinds of there's just all kinds of Christianese. The trappings of Christianity are, are are ingrained in some cultures, and they were ingrained in mine growing up. But I managed to grow up in that environment with a mile wide, inch deep theology of my own. I knew about godliness without know, without knowing God. The caricature of God that we seem to create and propagate when we use modern English and cultural norms is not the God of Scripture. Our study, this series, is going to focus on the attributes of the God of Scripture. Next week, we're going to talk, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about immutability, God's divine immutability, His being unchanging. That is a difficult concept to grasp. We're, we're going to talk about it. We're going to take it on because we live in a world that changes. We, 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 we value even worship change, progressing, growing. You remember Darwin and Herbert Spencer taught in, in this social Darwinism, this notion that the world is upwardly spiraling. But it's interesting that even in their own theory and Darwin, as you probably know, second guessed his own theories near the end of his life, but, but Herbert Spencer kind of took the ball and ran with it. But even in their own theories, they, they, they say the world's upwardly spiraling on its own and there, there's this natural selection and, and, and all the rest. It's, it's purifying on its own. It's growing on its own. And yet they say, but wait a minute, it's our duty to help it along with things like eugenics and, and others. So it either is upwardly spiraling or it's not. And we know that it's not. We, we, we kind of like change for the sake of change, don't we? Our politicians promise change. But God is timeless and changeless. That does not mean boring and old and traditional. It means that there's beauty that we can explore forever without fully understanding God. We have to be comfortable in this discussion. I want to be comfortable acknowledging our shortcomings as humans, like I've done today, in even addressing this subject. If we try to package God as something that we can fully understand, fully get our arms around, we're not talking, because we can imagine a higher being than that. And so we're not talking about the true living God. None is higher. None is greater. Oh, what a study this is going to be. You're going to hear words like God's transcendence, his being apart from us, bigger than us, bigger than we can understand, and his eminence, his being with us. And we're going to talk about those things comfortably, that he is relational with us, but we don't fill some need, some deficiency, some gap that God had. You'll hear people say that. God was lonely. No, no, nope, not taught in scripture. Um, you'll hear, you'll, you'll read some sections of scripture that apply sort of man's language to God. And, and I, I think that's because the, the author, who ultimately is the Holy Spirit, who inspired this word, I, I, you know, uses terms that we understand as humans. But it, that does not mean that Scripture teaches that, that God is just like us and has, has needs and is a sum of a bunch of component parts. That's just not the case. So I hope that came across in today's discussion on divine simplicity. I hope you'll come back next week for a discussion on God's immutability. We really go for it in this first topic. You'll see that God's being unchanging is just a, 
a beautiful doctrine to kick us off uh, for this study of the attributes of God. I hope you'll uh, send an email or contact me on my contact form, john at johnwarrenmedia.com. If you have questions or if I've raised a concern, if I said something casually that was an offense, I'd love to hear about it. Or if I piqued your interest and you'd like more information on, on our topic, I'd be happy to discuss that with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.